Well, good morning, everyone. Glad that the ice kind of held off this morning. I know you're, if you're like me, you kind of looked at the forecast like, well, usually when it's a borderline like this, it's all right downtown. So I'm glad you guys are joining us today. For those watching online, thanks for tuning in uh, to join us today. Uh, we get to continue this series called Onward. And I love that at the start of each year, it, it's such a great opportunity to reflect and recalibrate and kind of get ourselves going in the right direction. And, and that's really what we want to do today as we kind of get in the series. We've got a few more weeks after this to, to kind of dive a little deeper. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I want to mention uh, the Christmas offering because... Uh, we've been talking about that. Last week we announced that the Christmas offering was right around like $15,000. Y'all remember that? Our goal was to give $6,000 to the Freedom Firm, which is a organization that rescues girls out of sex trafficking in India. And uh, we've got some connections to that ministry. Um, and so our goal was to give $6,000. we are not going to give $6,000 to them, okay? We're going to give $12,000 to them. Is that, isn't that awesome? Um, and uh, we're actually going to put 12,000, we split that and do 12,000 into our Engage Fund as well. Um, the total Christmas offering was, uh, let me give you the, the number here, $26,359. Isn't that incredible? Um, so not only that, our giving towards the church at the end of the year was awesome too. It just, here's the thing, we don't, and, I, and I've shared this before, we don't manipulate or guilt you into giving, we just say, we, we trust that God's people are going to support God's work. And what we've seen time and time again is that is that has played out. Uh, we've met our budget, uh, actually exceeded it the last three years. During COVID, when so many churches were struggling, we were able to continue pressing forward and expanding ministry. Our giving went up through COVID, which makes no sense, right? Um, but we saw that. And so uh, I just want to thank you guys for your generosity. Thank you for that we're continuing to, to press forward. We're not having to pull back. We're not having to cut ministries or cut positions. Or We're, we're just saying, God, what do you want us to do? Uh, wind us up, let us go, and, and we're going to do it. So uh, thank you guys for that and for the ability to do that. Uh, we're in this series called Onward, and it's a series about a journey. Uh, we're all on a journey. When you put your faith in Christ, when you recommit your life to Him, uh, we start where we are, and then we allow God to take us where He wants us to be. And in the process, He transforms us to be more like Jesus. That's the journey of faith that we're all on. Is we're on this journey to, we're not quite where we need to be, but we, we have to trust God enough to let Him take us to where He wants us to be. And so, uh, this journey we're, we're talking about in this series, what it looks like to really put our faith in Jesus. Uh, what does it look like? Um, I'll kind of start off this morning by just sharing this. Do you guys, when you plan a vacation, how do you plan? Uh, it's interesting, like for, for, for our family, I'm like the detail guy. So I like knowing like, um, uh, like different opportunities and where we're going. My wife is like the, the she's like getting us a place to stay she's a ninja at it okay she can like find the perfect place to stay for our family so she's good at researching airbnb and verbo and hotels and figuring out the the, the best place and and i'm like i'm kind of focused honestly for the truth be now i'm focused on where we're going to eat each night <laughs> so i'm planning out the eating schedule because that's what a vacation is all about right 
forget the diet. I mean, when we get back, you got time to diet when you get back. But on vacation, we're going to find some good places to eat. And it's interesting because you come up with a, a plan and you, you spend all your time, doing, you're asking your friends and you're posting it. You're, we're kind of crowdsourcing our vacations now. Like We put on Facebook like, hey, have y'all been to this place? What should we do? Where should, where should we go? Where should we, we stay? And So we're getting all this information. We're making our packing list and our to-do list and we're trying to have a successful trip. Um, and now, I mean, we have the internet now, so it's so easy. Do y'all remember what it was like planning vacations before the internet? Some of y'all do. All right. You actually had to pick up the phone and call places or like call the Chamber of Commerce or the tourism departments and they would send you these things called brochures. <laughs> and that's how you planned your trip, right? Because you couldn't just go on Google and say, you know, where, what's the best place to eat and and wherever. I mean, you actually had to do some work, but it's so easy now because, but we still, we can get overwhelmed with all the planning and all the time. So let me ask you this, all that intentionality, all that time we put into planning a trip, are we planning, are we spending time on, on looking at our trip, our journey with Jesus? Are, are we Jesus asked that we follow him with that same type of intentionality. And you think of how serious we are about planning just a two or three day trip or a week long trip. What about a lifelong journey with Jesus? Are we intentional about where we're going and what we're doing and how we're uh, being transformed in the process? That's really what we want to talk about today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. We'll be there in a minute. Uh, the verses will be on the screen if you're watching online or here. But uh, if you've got your Bible, we'll kind of be flipping through Luke 14. And Luke 14, really when we look at it, it's a call to turn over every area of our life and give the control of it to Jesus. Uh, that's what Luke 14 is about. Uh, and our time, how we spend our time, how we invest our resources, how we use our talents for His glory. It's taking every area of our life and saying, okay, how can we take this and, and turn it around and put it uh, under the authority of Jesus? How can we let Him lead our life? And uh, I love Luke 14 because it goes against a, a lot of human nature. It goes against our selfishness. It goes against this world that tells us it's all about you and your comfort and your joy and your satisfaction and your happiness. Right? We deserve to be happy. That's what the world will tell us. But Jesus is giving a, a countercultural message here. Um, there's a, George Gallup runs a, a kind of a poll company. They do surveys. And, and, and he says this based on his surveys. He says he thinks that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed. Think about that. Temper, out of all the people that say, hey, I'm an evangelical Christian, he says like, only like 10% or less are really like what we would call deeply committed. He said most of those who profess Christianity don't know basic teachings and they don't act differently because of their Christian faith. That's a scary thought a little bit that 10% of, of Christians, of people in a church would be committed. Uh, George Barna, who does kind of the same thing, the type of polling, he says he found that almost half of evangelicals don't read their Bible once a week. Um, 
half of even we have Christians that say I'm a Christian, that say I'm a follower of Jesus, that say I'm even a disciple, but they're not in his word. They're, they're not really living their life any differently as a result, and that should scare us. Right? That, that, should, that should really convict us and, and make us evaluate our own life a little bit. Can I just tell you, if there's one single thing that you could do to really change your life, it's to get in God's word. And what better time to do it than at the start of a year? We've got Bible reading plans on our website. You can go on the Bible app on your phone. There's all sorts of reading plans that you can do. I'm doing the one-year Bible plan this year um, and doing it with some videos from Israel that kind of back up about the Holy Land. It's really neat. Uh, Last year I did the Bible project where it had the videos that kind of explained each book of the Bible as you went. Uh, there's so many reading plans you can do, and some are shorter, some are the whole Bible, some are just the New Testament, but just getting in His Word. And the reality is we can't expect God to lead us or to transform us if we don't spend time with Him. If we're not in His Word, right? His Word is what convicts us, it's what teaches us, it's what guides us. He speaks to us through His Word. And so if there's one single thing that as we start the year that I could challenge you on is are you in His Word? Are you in the Bible and reading and letting the Holy Spirit talk and challenge you? And so that's the one thing you can do. Let, let's kind of jump into the message this morning. Um, and we'll start off with Luke 14 verse 1. And it, it just simply uh, it starts off with this story about Jesus, and it just says one Sabbath. And that's important. It, this is on a Sabbath, right? When you're supposed to be resting, and Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. Now, Jesus had a habit. He had a tendency to kind of do things that created um, a little controversy in the, t- in the day and the time. Um, I can tell you from being in Israel last year that uh, on the, the Sabbath or Shabbat, right, that they, um, it, it's a weird thing. The streets are empty. The stores are all closed. Uh, even the hotel we were staying at, they don't like cook. I mean, they don't do coffee on the Sabbath because it takes too much work. I mean, they have to pre-prepare everything. It's, it's just a weird experience to be in that because, um, uh, you know, they're, they're just so strict about not working. All right. And here we have Jesus um, on the Sabbath in the home of a Pharisee. People are watching him. And the first thing he does, right? it's like he just throws out this bomb on the table. He throws out this conversation starter and, and says, uh, is it permitted by the law to heal people on the Sabbath? All right. I don't know if you've ever been like at a family dinner at Thanksgiving or, Christ- or Christmas, but it's funny if you just drop one of those like political bombs on the table and just see where it goes. Like, what do you think about our current president? Just say that and see what happens, right? That's kind of what Jesus did here. He just like, everybody's sitting around, he's like, so let me ask you a question. And he's just sitting back, and Jesus just smiled. Like, I wonder where this is going to go. I wonder what controversy this is going to... And, of course, they start arguing about whether it's lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath. And so then Jesus, what he does, he shares two parables uh, just to kind of to make them think a little bit more. He t- gives one about exalting um, 
um, yourself at the head of the table. And before that, Jesus actually heals someone. And so, I mean, he's really stirring the pot here. And then he, he talks about not exalting yourself at the head of the table. Instead, you should be humble. Then he talks about having this feast where they invite everybody and all the important people won't come. And, and he uses it, he's talking about humility here. And so this is, this is so interesting because this, right after this, we have a passage that teaches us so much about discipleship. And just like with the Pharisees, uh, it goes against so much of what I think happens in churches today. So uh, the first thing we've got to establish this morning as we kind of jump in this passage and, and really get to the meat of the message, it's simply that Jesus was not interested in being popular. You, you realize this, right? That Jesus, his ministry was not about exalting himself and like, let's see how many people we can get here. When he started his ministry in Capernaum, he was like, you know what, I'm going to heal this person, but don't go and tell anybody about what happened. He tries to, to lay low a little bit, and, but as he started healing people and as he fed the 5,000 and, and, and we see these miracles happen and the demon-possessed man was, uh, the chains were, you know, let, let, you see all this stuff happen. Naturally, the word gets out and more and more people start gathering around to, to check this out, like what's going on with Jesus and what's he doing? And, and, and so we see all of this and and we see in Luke 14, 25, it says this, a large crowd was following Jesus. Now what's interesting here is Jesus had become popular at this point. A large crowd, they, whether he wanted to or not, people were, were crowded around to hear him. And up until this point, there had never been anyone in Israel like this before. No, no one that had commanded this type of attention. And so there's a lot of people there, but just because he had a crowd didn't mean he had a large group of committed followers. Are you, are you tracking with me, right? I mean, he had a lot of people around, but they were there not for all for the right reasons. They wanted to see what's this, all this commotion, what's he doing, and who is this guy, and maybe he can do something for me. Many of them were there for what they could get from Jesus. I think the same thing could be said for for christians today if we're not careful sometimes people are there as part of the crowd to see what they can get from jesus not how they can serve jesus and so jesus he knew what his purpose was he knew he was there to do the will of the father he knew that his message would not be popular and so he knew that his message was what's going to get him killed and, and, and crucified on a cross on our behalf. And so his, his goal was not popularity. His goal was not to please people. And if we're not careful, right, I think our goal in church, our goal is, as just people can be, let's see if we can keep everybody happy. And can I tell you, pleasing people is one of the quickest ways to displease God. When we, when we focus on making everyone else happy, we, we, we're focused on keeping the peace. We're focused on being popular and exalting ourselves. In, in essence, that's what we do, right, when we try to keep everybody happy. We're, we want to become the center of attention. And, and when we do that, right, it takes the focus off of God. And I would say the same thing is true for a church. It, it's such an easy trap to, to fall into is to, to focus on how many people we can gather as a church. 
All right, focus on the crowd. But I'll, I'll tell you, just because you have a crowd doesn't mean you have a church. Now, now, lost people are important, don't get me wrong, but how you attract them matters, right? The crowd is not always committed. The crowd is often focused on what Jesus can do for them. Uh, they, want to, they want to be, right, the object of his affection. They want to see what Jesus can do for me. Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor of old, he he said this one time, and I, and I agree with him. He said, it's, he said, it's very often happens that the converts that are born in excitement die when the excitement is over. Some of the most glaring sinners known to me were once members of a church and were, as I believe, led to make a profession by undue pressure, well-meant but ill-judged. And what he's saying, right, if, if we attract people by the excitement if we try to become popular and, and, and get it, make everybody happy and happy. And, and I mean, I could do messages that, that attract people, right? Ten ways to a happy life. And I mean, so many Christian books, bestseller books are based on like, you know, five ways to make your marriage better and ten ways to do this and seven ways. To, they're all about us. But if we, sometimes the messages about Jesus aren't as popular, Right? Because following Jesus it doesn't always make your life easier. And that's kind of what, what we're talking about today. So how do we do this? How do we focus not on being popular but on being faithful? Because that's really our goal. Well, I wanted to do that. I want to look at Luke 14. And there's four things that Jesus calls us to do. And so let's, let's take a look at these. Here's the first thing that Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to reorder our relationships. Now, I'm just going to tell you up front, right, this is not one of those easy messages that you'll leave here feeling, oh, I'm so happy, that was so great, okay? This is one of those messages that, I mean, if you allow God to use it and speak to you, it's going to challenge you a little bit. It's going to step on your toes. So, so let's kind of jump right in, and you see exactly what I'm talking about right in Luke 25, 26 here. A large crowd was following Jesus. And so you would think Jesus would, would say at this point, hey, everybody, come on, this is awesome. What, did, what does Jesus do whenever a large crowd follows him? He tries to talk them out of following him. He, he tells them, this is not what you think it is. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And, and the New Living kind of, it softens it a little bit here. If you look at the literal way that verse says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciples. If you don't hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. What is he, what, what, I mean, aren't we supposed to love? Why, I mean, can't we love our family? Well, what he's doing here, it's a way of kind of a Jewish idiom here. It's a form of comparison. And what he's telling us is by comparison, your love for God has got to be so great that everything else in comparison to it looks like hate. That's the, and you know, Luke, you were talking about your, your son Henry up here this morning leading worship. And, and you know how much love you have for your, your child. But Jesus is telling us our love for God has got to far exceed that. We, we don't even comprehend 
what that looks like. Because we know how much we love our spouse. We know how much we love our kids. And yet Jesus is challenging. Like, you can't be my disciple unless you love me that much more. This is challenging, right? This is challenging. You see, there's another passage in Matthew that explains the same thing. So this is not just a one-off occurrence with Jesus. He was telling people this. He says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to this earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. All right? I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or your daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. This is, I mean, this is so challenging to us, right? He's saying... And our world today tells us the exact opposite. Our, our world today says, you know, uh, it's all about your kids. Do anything you can and your kids are the focus of your family. Our world today says, hey, if you have a happy wife, you'll have a, a happy life, all right? Our world today says, it's all about me. Let let's me do, it. I deserve to be happy, right? You see so many people going through divorce. Why? Because I deserve to be happy. That's what the world tells us, all of these things. And yet Jesus says here, wait a minute here, your love for me has got to far exceed. If you, love, if you don't love me more than all of these earthly things, then you cannot be my disciple. You're not worthy of being mine. And so he's telling us here, we've got to get our relationships in the right order if we want to follow Jesus. We, we've got to get all... You know, we've got to, to, to do this. And, and I'm telling you, right, this is not, I feel like churches miss this sometimes. In the, the 80s and 90s, we saw this big movement of, uh, of building big churches. And the churches were all about, let's do as much as we can to get as many people as we can in the church and, and make them feel welcomed. And, and, and so you saw churches being built with bowling alleys and racquetball courts and sports programs and all of this stuff. And you, yes, you had large crowds of people. But can I tell you that many of those same churches are struggling today because when the going got tough, the people left. What you attracted people with, all the excitement, all the, that's what they continued to, they were, it, they were there because of what they could get from Jesus what they could what Jesus could do for them instead of what they could do for Jesus. That's that's the challenge we 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 face as any church that we've got to be careful what we do. And it's interesting sometimes to fix the church, I think sometimes we have to look back and learn from history what's happened in the past. And one of the early church fathers uh, from North Africa was St. Augustine. He lived from uh, about 354 to about 430 A.D., so just a few centuries after Jesus. Um, and he wrote a lot. He's a prolific writer. He wrote a, a, a treatise called The City of God. He also wrote uh, Confessions by, by Augustine. Um, and he said this in The City of God, and, and this is kind of an interesting quote. He said, But living a just and a holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and an impartial evaluation. So if we want to be holy, we've got to be able to evaluate our life. Okay, I'm, I'm going to translate as we go here. 
to love things, that is to say, in the right order so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. Perfect sense, right? But it's, it's, it's good here, right? I'm t- he's saying we, we don't love what we're not supposed to love. We should love what we're supposed to love and we need to make sure we love in the right amount. Okay, that, that's, that's my translation of that. Uh, and what happened with Augustine, he was struck by how many people just had stuff, had material things, but were, were not happy. They were discontent. And he realized something, that humans, we have our priorities out of order, that we love the wrong things. And he actually wrote about this in his work, Confessions. He said, sin comes from a wrongly ordered love sin comes from a wrongly ordered love when we evaluate when we elevate the wrong things or the right things in the wrong amount right we are committing idolatry so augustine taught this that that we had to rightly order our loves tim keller a pastor in new york he wrote about this and he said augustine taught that we are most fundamentally shaped not as much by what we believe or think or even do but by what by what we love for when we ask whether somebody is, good, is a good person, we are not, not asking whether he, what he believes or hopes for, but what he loves. That's, that's kind of how we evaluate people, by how much they love. For Augustine, what we call human virtues are nothing more than forms of love. Courage is loving your neighbor's well-being more than your own safety. Honesty is loving your neighbor's interests more than his own, even when the truth will put you at a disadvantage. And because Jesus himself said that all of God's law comes down to loving God and your neighbor, Augustine believed all sin was ultimately a lack of love. So what Augustine is teaching right here is if we want to love God, we've got to rightly order our love. We've got to reorder our relationships. God is preeminent over everything, above everything, at the center of everything. That, then below that comes our family, and then below that comes our church, right? We've got to be careful that we order our relationships in the right way, and that Jesus is the head of every relationship. And I'm, I'm telling you, that we, I think you would agree with me on that, but when push comes to shove, and when real life, you know, we get in real life, the world is not telling us that. The world is telling us it's all about you. It's all about my family. It's all about my kids. It's all about my marriage. And, and you just fit Jesus in when you can. You, you kind of stick, you know, say your devotion in the morning, then shove it aside and you're done for the day. That's not what loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength looks like. It's putting Jesus at the center of everything you do. That's what true transformation looks like. So that's the first thing Jesus calls us to do, to to reorder our relationships. Here's the second. He calls us to to sacrifice. He calls us to sacrifice. This is, again, right, the, the, the message, if we're not careful of Christianity, is Jesus loves you and he wants the best for you. Um, and so he wants you to, to be successful and happy and wealthy and wise. <laughs> what does Scripture say? Luke 14, 27. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. 
We want safe. We want comfortable. We want blessed. We want assurances that everything's going to be okay. We want to be in control. We want to be safe. We want to know that where life is going to take us, and we want everything to be predictable. But can I tell you, life is not always safe. When we go on mission trips, I, I, I'm just—I'll I'll tell you something here, and and just see, like the question that I'm probably most asked when people are going on a mission trip somewhere. Is, is it safe? Can I just push back against that a little bit? When was following Jesus about safety? When was it about comfortable? When, I mean, when Jesus had followers, did he say, yeah, come, come follow me. It's going to be safe with me. It's going to be easy. Uh, you, you, oh, don't worry. We've got, we stay in really nice places. You have, you're going to have a plush bed everywhere we go. What did Jesus say? He said, if you follow me, you're not going to have anywhere to lay down your head. If you follow me, people are going to hate you. People are going to persecute you. If you follow me, you're going to suffer. Now, that message, right, is not a real popular message. But I'm telling you, if you follow Jesus, I can't guarantee your safety. He's going to take you places that are going to put you in an uncomfortable situation. All right? I, I, we've had that question a lot with our homeless warming shelter. Is it safe? Well, I mean, the people are great, right? But is it safe anywhere you go? Is it safe at Walmart? Is it safe at the grocery store? Is it safe going driving down in your car down the road? Right? I mean, you watch the news every night. You find out we don't live in a safe world. If we follow Jesus, our goal is not safety. It's obedience. Our goal is faithfulness. Our goal is to follow him wherever he calls us to go. What does the cross represent when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me? The cross represents death. When he shared that, he's telling people, if you want to follow me, your old way of life is gone. It's dead. You've got to lay it down. Luke 9.23 said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. He kind of expands on that, right? Give up. You've got to quit doing life your way. You've got to start doing life God's way. It means you have to sacrifice. You have to live differently. It means that since Jesus died for us, now we live for him. Colossians 3 says it this way. It says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. So we think differently. Our life is not about ourselves now. We're thinking about the things of heaven. We live in this world that wants the easy way out. We want quick results. We don't want suffering. We don't want hardship. I was thinking this week and and preparing for this, and the the book that just naturally came to my mind, I don't know if you've read it, uh, kind of a deep book, but it's by a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Any of y'all familiar with that? Cost of... He was a German theologian during World War II. Um, and he pushed back against Hitler. So much so that he was imprisoned and, and later executed. He was executed in 1945, right before uh, the collapse of the, the German uh, government there. Uh, but he was executed for standing up for what was right. And he wrote a lot about something called cheap grace versus costly grace. And so if you study him a little bit, you, you'll see that he was concerned because of cheap grace. 
Um, and, and one way to, to describe this, it's been described, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. It's grace without the constant knowledge and hope of the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is how he describes costly grace, though. He says, costly grace is living our lives as Christians, following Jesus, even if it is costly to us. And from my perspective, I'm afraid that what he said is so true that so many people follow Jesus as long as it doesn't get hard. As long as my feelings don't get hurt. As long as someone doesn't say anything to me that offends me. As long as it's convenient and fits in my schedule. It's cheap grace. Costly grace is following Jesus even when it's costly to us. It's sacrificing. It's understanding that what Jesus has called us to do is not easy. It's understanding the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross. And so it means that I'm afraid that so many people are not truly sacrificing anything for the sake of the gospel because they're more concerned about their own comfortable lifestyle. It's cheap grace. Um. He said, he went on to say, cheap grace is living as a Christian without attempting to follow Jesus. And when people are accepting cheap grace, they are taking the grace that God has granted them for granted. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, he said, Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tension-packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves leaves its mark upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way which only comes through suffering. So what following Jesus, the cross leaves a mark on us. It changes us. It helps us to be more like Jesus. And when we take up our cross daily, it means we are sacrificing daily. It means that, yes, we'll even suffer daily. And so my question to you is, what are you sacrificing for Jesus? Is it your comfort? Is it your, your resources? Is, is it your, uh, what is it that you're willing to sacrifice? Are you holding on tightly to control so you, you don't have to sacrifice? So that's the second thing. We've got to sacrifice. Here's the third. Jesus also calls us to consider the cost. So the message doesn't get easier as we go. He just keeps like laying into us here in, in this passage a little bit. Like, do you really understand what it looks like to follow me? And there, there's other places in Scripture he does this, right? Where he tries to talk people out of following him. But here he says, let's consider the cost. Luke 14, verse 28, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's this person who started that building. They couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So Jesus knew here, right, that they're still trying to to struggle trying to understand what he's talking about. So he just lays out a really practical example. 
If you're going to build a tower, before you even start, you're going to understand what you're starting to do. And reality is saying, if you're going to follow me, you've got to understand what this means to your way of life. You've got to count the cost. You've got to realize the consequences. And then he says, right, you wouldn't go to war without it. And so let me just ask you, because when Jesus invites people to follow him, this is his model, right? Do you, are you going to lay down your cross and follow me? Are you going to uh, become a fisher of men? Are you going to... Uh, are you going to understand? Are you going to count the cost? Does Jesus ever try to emotionally manipulate or beg or plead people to follow him? Now, there are some um, sacred cows in churches a little bit. And I'm going to touch on one today. Um, I think you can't be afraid to talk about how we do church. Um, over the years, I've, one of the things that I think churches struggle with is how do you do an altar call or a response time or an invitation. And we've had people over the years get mad. We don't do it the right way or don't do it. And can I just tell you, do you know where the altar call comes from? It comes from the 1830s. It was really where it got to start with a revivalist named uh, Charles Finney, uh, a New York evangelist. He did revivals. And um, he started this thing where the front row, they would call it the anxious bench or the anxious seat. And so what they would do is they would bring people up to the front who needed to hear the gospel, right? So the people, and they would like preach at them, right? Like to, and it would be a very, um, kind of a, almost a very emotional thing, right? That was the altar call, and they would try to get people to respond and, and get saved. And I read this, it said, The anxious bench was for those who had been so deeply affected by the preaching that they wished to be saved. They were promise with the anxious bench was that the individuals by sitting there uh, they could come forward raise their hands kneel they could receive salvation when they came forward what was not realized at this time was but by emphasizing these visual signs of conversion many false conversions occurred instead preachers were a you know preachers were able to manipulate the emotions of the people to achieve the end of raised conversion numbers and that was seen as a success and so and, and otherwise uh, that, that's kind of why it became popular. As a result, revival re was replaced with revivalism. Now, I'm not against altar calls. I'm not against invitations, but I am against manipulation, and I am against uh, the emotionalism of it. All right? I, I, I'm against this whole idea of this pressure that, that you've got to manipulate people in order to present the gospel in such a way to make it, oh, I want that. Jesus didn't do that. When Jesus presented the gospel, he laid it out, gave people an opportunity to respond, and he said, you either respond or he didn't go after them. He didn't chase them. He didn't manipulate them. He didn't pressure them. He didn't sing 20 verses of just as I am. Have y'all been in church services like that? And you still don't sing the third verse. I don't know what that is. You can sing it 20 times, but you skip that third verse. I don't understand it. But that's the, the, that's the, the manipulation if we're not careful. And, and so I, I'm just against that because Jesus, he calls us to count the cost. If you're going to follow me, here's the cost. It's not about emotion. It's not about, uh, it's not about what you get from the transaction. It's about laying down your life, picking up your cross daily, and following after Jesus. And finally, the fourth thing, uh, just in closing, Jesus calls us to be intentional about obedience. 
Luke 14, 33 says, You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. He's asking us to realize that there's a fundamental change in how we view ownership when we follow Jesus. Everything we have is no longer ours. It now belongs to Him. We're just managers. We're just stewards of it. What He gives us, what we have, is a blessing from Him. And then we allow Him to use us to distribute it in ways to honor Him. Our time, our talent, our resources, our money, everything. Everything in life now is about Jesus. Galatians 2.20 says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see all this play out with the rich young ruler who approaches Jesus. And I don't have it on the screen, but Luke 18, you can go read it. All right. Um, rich young ruler comes up and says, Master, what must I do to, to follow you? I, I've followed the Ten Commandments since my youth. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. Jesus looks at him and says, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and then come back and follow me. And How's the rich young ruler? He walks away sad. He walks away dejected because he knew he couldn't do it. Jesus didn't chase after him. Jesus just gave him the opportunity. And he rejected Jesus. He knew that he couldn't let go of his stuff. Now, on the contrary, there's a, a, a parable in, in, in Matthew 13 that kind of describes the opposite response. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again. He sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. That's the opposite response. It's like, we find Jesus, and I'm so excited about Jesus that I'm willing to leave everything else behind and chase after Him. He goes on, Matthew 13, the, 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 the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls, and when he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. What Jesus is asking us to do is to lay down everything, to renounce control of everything, to, to make Him the Lord of our life. So many people want Jesus to be their Savior, but not their Lord. When Jesus is Lord of your life, you're giving Him control. You're saying, you're going to come first in my life. And, and can I just challenge you, are you willing to let every other relationship fall under the control of Jesus? Are you willing to let all of your resources fall under Jesus? Are you willing to live your life and say, Jesus, whatever you call me to do, whatever you, wherever you guide me to go, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust you. It's not about my comfort. It's about your glory. This is, this is the message of the gospel. Am I willing to surrender and make Jesus the Lord of my life? Now, I'm going to close today. I've just talked about altar calls, altar calls and invitations. I'm not going to be manipulative i'm just going to tell you if you don't know jesus this is what it looks like to follow him the choice is yours are you going to trust jesus is he the lord of your life so if you're watching online or if you're here this is your opportunity to get things right with him i'm not going to manipulate you i'm just saying this is this is what the gospel is about it's a completely new way of life the old has passed away, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ when we put our faith and our trust in Him. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond right now. Heavenly Father, this morning Your Word challenges us. So It's such a heavy message at times to realize that our life is not about our own comfort. 
but it's about your glory. And so when we put our faith and trust in you, when we allow you to guide us, our, our life changes for the better. But it's not always easier. It means we may suffer. It means we may be asked to do some very hard things. But it also means that you're going to be with us every step of the way. That we get to have a, an intimate relationship with the God who loves us and created us and, and wants to speak truth and life into us along the way. So, Father, I pray for those listening today and people here in this church today that they would be able to, to know that type of relationship. They would be able to know that you are their Lord and their Savior. Your word tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord of our life and we believe in our heart, God, that you, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that you sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sin, then we will be saved. So today, that's my prayer, that every person in this room, every person listening online would know you as their Lord. They would be able to proclaim that Jesus is my master. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to count the cost. I'm going to pick up my cross daily and follow after Jesus. I'm going to go where he calls me to go. I'm going to do what he calls me to do. I'm going to live how he calls me to live. I'm going to confess the sin in my life that is separated me from God. I'm going to focus on what it looks like to live in this kingdom of God with Jesus as my king. So today, Lord, that's the invitation you've given us. Will we accept it? Lord, we just thank you for your word. We're thankful for Jesus, most of all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.